Hello, people of the world, and welcome to the Unity Project podcast. For those listening for the first time, the Unity Project is a podcast about the relationships that we have with our bodies. Today is the start of season five. Season five of the Unity Project podcast. That is insane. That is crazy that I have been doing this for five years. This podcast was kind of a pipe dream for me when I first started, so the fact that I get to keep doing it is so freaking cool. So to kick off season five, I thought it would be super fun to switch things up a little bit. And instead of being the interviewer, I have decided to take on the role of the interviewee. And my gosh, it's so much harder than I realized to be asked the question to describe the relationship I have with my body. Forgot that that's a hard question. So <laughs> this was this was interesting, but what was so fun is I asked my wife, my wife Kaylee, that's probably, no, 100 million percent the highlight of 2023 was getting married, best day ever. But my wife Kaylee is actually interviewing me today. So you guys get the treat of hearing from my beautiful, wonderful, perfect wife Kaylee, which I just love her so much, and it was so fun getting to have her on the podcast for, I think, like the fourth time, I think. The first time she was ever on here, we weren't even dating yet, which was interesting. So anyway, we had to split this up into two parts because after sharing for about an hour, I realized it's really emotionally exhausting to share your story and talk about all of these topics that I like to pick people's brains about. So we did part one. This is part one of my episode being interviewed by Kaylee. You can find part two hopefully soon, hopefully next week. So stay tuned and I hope you enjoy hearing me fumble around my story and try to answer the questions I'm constantly asking other people. Enjoy. Hello, Jackie. Hello, Kaylee. How's it going? It's going really good. How do you feel? Nervous. I've never interviewed anybody outside of like a job situation, so this is going to be fun and exciting. Okay, I'm excited for you. <laughs> How are you feeling? I'm nervous because I have to be vulnerable today. Yeah. <laughs> Normally, I don't have to do that. Normally, the other person has to do that, and I just get to ask them questions. <laughs> Well, you're in the hot seat today. Are you ready? The hot seat. The hot seat. Yeah, I think I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, I we, we have Bennett here with we, us, so there might be Bennett. brief interruptions when she wants she's, to get involved. Yeah, she's asking for pets right now. But um, all right, so do you want to get started? 
We just want to jump right in. <laughs> I don't really. I, you know me. I don't do small talk, so. I know. Normally, I have to think of, like, four funny things to say, and then we What about in. the weather out the there? The weather's it's, not funny. It's cold. It's snowy. It's very cold. We just it's took like out. negative degrees. We just took the tree out the on Wappen January 14th. Yep. We finally took the tree outside, mm-hmm. and it was very sad. We had to say goodbye and thank you for Christmas. Yes. We named her Barb, so we said her thank you, Barb. Barb. It was. See, this is what's going to happen. Benny, off. Go lay down. Go lay down. Benny. Benny. Lay down. Lay down. Or we have to put you in prison. You're the like, good girl. Good stay. girl. Okay, now we can jump in. Okay, we did, we did the small funny talk. We did talk. the small talk. <laughs> Bennett interrupted us. Yeah, we're, we're good. good. Okay, so as you ask all your guests, I'm going to start off with the first question. <laughs> Or the first, I guess, request. Can you please describe the relationship you have with your body? (sighs) Whenever I ask this question, I always expect like an automatic response. Um, And then sometimes I sit and think about how it actually feels to be asked that question. Because I don't think I've been asked that exact question since treatment. Like unprompted. The first time I was asked that question, that was like the spark of everything. It was kind of like pulling the thread to unravel all the things. Um, I think my relationship with my body has gotten a lot better. I think I'd probably describe it as like... I'm trying to think of a metaphor. People always have really interesting ways to describe it and I'm trying to find a good way I don't know I used to because I used to like despise my body and want to be as far away and as outside of it and disconnected as humanly possible or I would just like not want to know that it existed and just ignore it and I think that I it's a I don't know it's a really hard question I came up with. I think I I want to take back the thing I said about the roommate. I think I feel like we're working on it. It's a work a work in progress, but we're on the better side of things that we used to be. I think I have come to a place of like acceptance. In treatment they talked a lot about the difference between body oh, what what's it called? Body po- body love, body, body pos- positivity. Yeah, some, mm-hmm. somewhere in there, the difference between that, and I think they said, like, body tolerance. Mm-hmm. I think it could start from, like, tolerance, like, you tolerate your body to, because that was always more, like, a more realistic way of talking about it. From there to, like, body acceptance, like, okay, I accept it that this is my body. I can look at it in the mirror. I can try on clothes. Like, I accept that it's there, and I'm, like, very aware, but not in a way where it's, like, scary but I don't know if I'm in that place where it's like, oh, I love my body and I'm super proud and like comfortable and confident and like that. That's my answer. <laughs> that makes sense. That's a good answer to a difficult question that you made up yes. <laughs> for this <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Um, so I guess we will take it back to the beginning mm. um, and kind of. I guess I want to know more about what, like, where you came from, what makes you you, what 
were the challenges of, you know, growing up that kind of made you have this, this pain that made you not like your body or despise your body. So back to me, back to you. <laughs> so I think one of the most defining factors from growing up was my, I think my relationship and like the dynamic between me and my big sister. So there were like a handful of pieces. There was that and then the fact that our parents kind of set us up for fail failure with like constantly comparing us to each other, kind of pinning us against each other, making like she was the golden child and I was the scapegoat. And it was just a whole range of things that developed from that. But we didn't really, we didn't know that as kids. We just thought that's just how you existed and that's just how you were. And so very early on, I had someone to constantly compare myself to in like every way, whether it was like school or sports or personality, um, humor, anything like that. But a big piece of it was um, our bodies because, well, we looked almost identical. People thought we were twins growing up um, down to like our body size. Like we looked the same, but also we were like the same, same size for most of our life. It was kind of just in my mind, a constant, I don't know how it was for her, but for me, it was like this constant comparison that I had to be, like she was like uh, the measuring stick. One of my friends in treatment used to say this about her sister, how she was like her metric system. Um, and so I was constantly comparing myself to her, partially from my own mind, but also my, like I said, my parents would compare us all the time. And so that was a big deal. Also, I was the little sister, so I had it in my mind that I had to be smaller than her at all times. So there was that component of it. Then there was the piece where my parents just in themselves were obsessed with being thin and fit and all the things. Like my mom, I am, my mom pretty, she definitely had an eating disorder of her own. Um, not something that she was ever said anything about or was a, probably even aware of. Um, but it was, looking back now, very, very evident. My dad had his own issues with food, too. It was, like, very much like my mom was, like, obsessed with dieting and being thin. And, like, my parents promised each other when they were, when they got married that they would never get fat. Uh, well, quote, fat. My dad was obsessed with us being thin. Like, he had me, I think I was, like, 9 or 10, and he had me get up from the table so he could like feel around my stomach and like was like pinching my skin and like telling me it looked like I gained weight and all this stuff. And it just felt like we were like under a microscope with that. So that was, that was kind of the like body side of things. Yeah, I mean, that environment being constantly compared to your sister and then also having your parents model this disordered perspective about food and to even be like, watching you so closely to make sure that you were fitting whatever their standard was for what your body should be. That's, that's really hard and pretty traumatic. Mm -hmm. And it definitely got worse as we got older, as we started to like become more aware of our bodies. And like, I think I developed an eating disorder around the age of like 10. That's when I can remember 
obsessing over food and exercise, I think for the first time, that's when it became like a very prevalent thing. Definitely there are pieces of it that was like coping with other things outside of just body images stuff. Like one of the, the biggest things I learned in treatment slash just in like therapy was that eating disorders, like they, they are about the body and things, but there's like a lot of deeper rooted things in there. Um, they're like coping mechanisms to deal with other stuff. And so, yeah. So in all of those things, how were you feeling? How was little Jackie feeling in, those, in that environment with that setup of like what, you know, your parents were saying and, and what you, you felt like you were under a microscope, but like what, what did that do to you and how did that make you feel? Mm -hmm. Very good question, Kaylee. <laughs> I think I spent a lot of time being really afraid. We've talked about this plenty of times on how like, since you and I have been together, I've felt more uh, free to tell you that I'm afraid and just free to like feel scared and be scared and like that be okay. Mm -hmm. um, but I spent, I think the majority of my childhood just being being really scared. Like I said earlier, we had the roles where my sister was the golden child and I was the scapegoat. And the scapegoat kind of came from like, I don't know, a lot of things. Like if something happened that was wrong, it was my fault. Like if something was broken, they would make jokes about how, well, Jackie, it wasn't even really jokes. It would just be like, well, Jackie must have been there because something's broken. Uh, they would say like when I was a baby, they would check my, under my wrist or neck or wherever it was for, um, 666, which for those who don't know or didn't have parents obsessed with the movie Left Behind or the Book of Revelation, it's the quote devil's number, which just means that like you belong to the devil and you're a devil child. So they would check for that. They would like make jokes about it, but they actually did do that. Like they thought something was wrong with me just because I would as a baby, I would cry a lot and throw tantrums and just like, I mean, not you expressed yourself. Yes. Because babies can only cry. And not that they need an excuse for this, but they also told me I had like triple ear infections. So I was probably in a lot of pain. <laughs> yes. But things like that. And so I think I just felt really afraid that something was wrong with me, that I was bad or not good enough or things like that and my dad was also like I just kind of hinted at very obsessed with uh, a version of Christianity that I don't know it was like the, the like doomsday Christian to where he was like planning for the second coming constantly and like growing plants in the basement for food and like saving up like peanut butter and stuff like that. And he was like trying to make us afraid, like that we need to fear God, which I guess makes sense why I was always afraid. Mm -hmm. So he was trying to make us be afraid and tell us that like, if we better have enough, like this was like a quote, like you better have enough faith. Like if you wanna like go to heaven, like you have to have enough faith or like, you don't know if you like believe or something, then you better figure it out and stuff like that. And so it was just this very fear-based thing. And it also felt really culty because 
he was afraid or not afraid. Well, he probably was very afraid too. Um, but he didn't trust people. He like didn't trust churches and stuff because he didn't want to be told what to do. Like he told me, he would proudly talk about how he's been fired from every job he ever had, including volunteer jobs because <laughs> he just didn't want to be told what to do. And so he decided we would start our own church at home. So it would just, just be us, just be the family, the four of us. And he was the leader. And so everything that we knew to be true about God was like filtered through his eyes, which is the Left Behind movie. <laughs> the old one. I haven't seen the new one with Kaylee's favorite person ever, Chad Michael Murray. Um, there, he's in that? There's a new one. <gasps> oh my gosh. Sure. I... I we don't need to go off on a chat. That's a rebel. Tangent. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, I'm going on a tangent. So what I'm hearing is that you had a lot of fear surrounding you measuring up to what your parents wanted. You mm -hmm. had a lot of fear surrounding God and potential, quote, end times. You watched your dad not trust anybody but himself, which probably in turn made you not trust yourself because he was kind of planting the seeds of mistrust in you as kids. Is that true? Would you mm -hmm. say that you didn't trust yourself? Oh, I've never trusted myself. <laughs> so yes. What helped you when you were afraid? Was there anything that helped you? I don't know. Like I, like as a kid, it was, it was really scary because my like support system that was supposed to be really comforting and like safe and helpful was my parents. And like different times I would try to go to them for things like this. Like a main example that I use or think back on is um, I saw a clip of the like old original Exorcist movie. For those who don't know what that is, it's basically this movie about a girl who gets like quote possessed by the devil and is just having a rough go. <laughs> uh, I haven't actually seen the movie and I will never see the movie but I saw a clip of it one of the really scary ones where it just like showed her being possessed and there's like I'm not going to explain the scene because I don't want to traumatize anyone listening. Like I was, um, but I saw this and I was super scared because it basically hit on all my fears. Like, like my parents would say I had the 666 on my neck. Mm -hmm. And so it's like fear of something being wrong with me, fear of it being that, fear of like anything to do with not following God or God was just scary to me. Mm -hmm. And so that was in that camp. And I saw a clip of that movie and I had nightmares and I couldn't sleep for like years. I would like wake up in the middle of the night sweating and like look in the mirror and make sure that my face didn't look wrong and like, I was so scared. I asked my dad about it and asked him if it was real because I told him I was really afraid. This was a long time after. I finally was like, I just need to ask him. And he told me it was real, but I just needed to have faith <laughs> and I'd be fine. That so, always makes you feel less afraid when somebody says that, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just I, what you needed to hear. I had like an insane not insane. I had a very big Christian phase, but it wasn't until later. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't even think like that was where I went to for comfort as far as like being afraid. So I had to do what he said and have faith and stuff. Like, I don't really even know. I was just always really afraid. Like I was, my dad didn't come home 
when he said he was one time. And so I like rode my bike around the neighborhood looking for his folded up clothes because in the Left Behind movie, when, for people who don't know this culture, this is gonna be so confusing. Basically in the movie, it's not even in the Bible, it's in the movie. <laughs> when the second coming happened, which was Jesus coming back the second time to take whoever believes in him and send everyone else to hell. Horrible concept. The people who got taken by him, the like, quote believers, had their clothes folded up <laughs> somewhere, like piles of folded clothes. Have you seen the movie? I've seen it. Okay, good. I, for a second, I was like, wait, have you even seen it? Mm -hmm. We're not watching it, but I, I, just, I just think it's extremely comical that the visual they then portrayed to the audience is that everybody's raptured completely naked. Yes, I knew you were going to say that. I just, they're all naked. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> Everyone's nude. Everyone's nude. <laughs> no, it is a nudist colony. You, you don't need clothes in heaven. No. Apparently. No. But I went around on my bike looking for his folded clothes. And I would constantly think the second coming happened and he was taken and I was left because, of course, I was because left. something was wrong with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I would go to bed at night, like, over and over, repeating, no volcanoes, no tornadoes, no earthquakes, no kidnappers. And I'd repeat that on a loop till I fell asleep. Because I was just so scared and anxious and I had nightmares every single night. I don't know what helped me. It's a good question. Who knows? So your childhood sounds like it was marked by a lot of fear. And you didn't, you can't, there's not a lot that you can point to that maybe like helped you during that time. As you got older and you became a little bit maybe more independent and like had, um, I guess, more opportunities to explore the world and things like that. What, how did that change your relationship with your body and maybe the things that you kind of went to to help bring hmm. comfort? I think as I got a bit older, my teen years, that's, that's I think when I started to find like real coping skills, especially like towards the end of high school is when what I used to call my rebellious phase, but really it was just me trying to find out who I was and how to just get by. So my relationship with my parents just was going very poorly. I think the difference in the way my sister and I coped with it, with like how they raised us and stuff, was she she would like try to try to be perfect for them and try to not like do anything wrong or be wrong in any way because they put her on this pedestal to where it was really scary, the idea of like falling off the pedestal. Mm -hmm. And so she went in that direction and I, for lack of better words, rebelled and was like, they think I'm crap anyway. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be a part of this family. I just, I was so, we were fighting all the time. I was like really wanting to just leave. Like I remember... I had a job, but I was trying really hard to get a second job. And I was trying to get my mom to drive me to the interview. And I remember, like, she wouldn't for some reason. Something was going on where she just, like, didn't want to take me or something. And I remember crying and begging her to take me because I told her, like, I need to, I don't want to be here. I need to not be in our house and be around you guys. Like, I need to please take me so I have a reason to not be here. And it's really sad. Mm -hmm. But I remember that moment and she took me, she took me to the interview. And so there was like, and I got the job. And so then I was home very, very little. 
this also was at the crossroads of me um, getting really sick of being compared to my sister. I wanted to figure out myself and have my own world and an identity. Yeah, an identity. And also, like, my sister was my everything growing up. She was the, like, person I tried to be like, like I said before, but also the person whose attention I felt like I needed the most. Like, I needed her approval the most because she was put on a pedestal and who I thought was the best, too. And she was on her own journey figuring herself out. And so she wasn't there in the way that I really, like, needed and wanted her to be, which isn't her fault it just Mm -hmm. was us trying to figure out how to be humans and exist Mm -hmm. uh when I got that new job I met these friends and um that's when I started to get really into like drinking and smoking weed and went down into like that trail of things to help me I quickly learned that like that was a way to cope and that was a way Mm -hmm. to exist that for moments, it didn't feel as scary and, like, painful and stuff. And so I went deep into that world. Mm-hmm. So in your adolescence, you were exploring what it looked like to have an identity of your own um, outside of your family. And you kind of explored that through friendships and then discovered some coping mechanisms that, whether healthy or not, helped you feel less afraid what did that look like when it came to the relationship you had with your body you were feeling less afraid maybe for a time how was that in terms of that relationship Mm -hmm. it's hard to say really because I don't know if I even other than like thinking about my body as like something to mold into something or something that needed to be fixed I don't think I really thought of anything of it outside of that like it definitely I don't know drinking and smoking and whatnot like the the strategies that I used definitely helped me also feel more disconnected from myself and my body like it was Mm -hmm. yeah like I just kind of forgot about it Mm -hmm. and didn't want to think about it like your relationship with your body is really like at the core, just your relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're separate. In my opinion, I don't think the mind and body are separate things. Um, I don't know enough about that to argue it, but I just theoretically don't believe that. So I think it really just made me feel very disconnected from myself, which in a way helped me mold it more. A lot of my life shifted between the ages of like 17 to 19 that like really pushed me into full force eating disorder mode. It kind of was just like, it really just helped me disconnect from myself and my body. It helped me not really see my body as anything more than something to mold and fix, which was what I, at the time, it just was easiest for myself. It was like a lot easier to be disconnected and to just think I want to shape my body into this unattainable thing. Mm-hmm than to just be aware and present and there and connected and stuff to myself. Mm -hmm. Because being in your body didn't feel safe. No. And to mold yourself into what you were told was acceptable to be, Mm -hmm. um, being present in your body would have been impossible. Yeah. 
there was a bit of a rock bottom in the middle of all that where drinking and smoking and all that felt it kind of shifted from being just a way to disconnect into like a way to survive like I felt mm-hmm. like I needed it mm-hmm. yeah because in the in the middle of it when I was 17 I was sexually assaulted by someone super super close to me and then not believed about it by people like my parents or my best friend or things like that. I was made to feel like it was either my fault or it didn't happen or this or that, which did a number on me (laughs) in a lot of ways as it would. It probably made it really hard to trust yourself even more than it probably already was. Yeah. Oh, big time. Um, Like I felt like I had to I don't know, like, I was like, did that even happen? Am I making this up? Like, are they right? Mm -hmm. Replaying it in my head over and over and over again and, like, just re-traumatizing myself to figure out what was real. Mm -hmm. And so that just sent me down, like, a bigger spiral of drinking and partying and trying to get through that. Mm -hmm. So 17 was around the point where you feel like you really hit survival mode, where you weren't now just using those coping mechanisms of drinking and partying and things like that as, you know, ways to numb or ways to escape, but they were then becoming ways to survive. Was there a point after that that it kind of, you felt like you were less in survival mode or was there a longer period of time of survival mode? Um, so there were, there were points where I thought I was coming out of it. Like, so when I... Turned 19, I decided I I thought I was going to do what was, like, right for me. And it it was, in a way, right for me. I wanted to move to leave Colorado and move to California to follow my, like, lifelong childhood dream of being a dolphin trainer. And that was going to be my, like, starting fresh, starting over. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it. I'm going to be okay. When I moved to California, I first moved to... LA to live with my sister uh, who was doing music at the time out there and this guy that she was doing music with was he was like this very charming charismatic successful YouTube musician dude who like if he gave you his attention you felt like you were on top of the world because you mattered he made you feel important he was like that guy that seemed untouchable and super cool and just the best. And he, he, we had known him for a while. I had known him since I was 15. We didn't see each other that often, but he had been doing music with my sister for a while. And he just seemed and felt like a safe person. And he seemed to really care about me. And he knew what had happened to me and everything like, He was one of the first people I talked to about when I was assaulted. That conversation was, later I realized, a horrible conversation, which I don't want to get into. But he told me, when I moved out there, I was going to get a job waiting tables. And that's what I was doing before when that happened with my friend who, where I was assaulted. And so he told me that he wanted to, like, save me from that and get me out of that and help me and so he gave he said he wanted to hire me to be his personal assistant of course I said yes like of course he Mm -hmm. was like it's gonna involve getting to go on tour and getting to like go to like fancy parties and these big like 
YouTube events and these really awesome things. And like, he's like, you'll have to be cool with like, just traveling on the drop of a hat and like sleeping on the floor and like all this stuff that to me was like the dream. I was like, yes, 10 times million. Yes. Like I would, because mm-hmm. I, I, I'm an Enneagram 7. I'm very much like I want adventure and a life mm-hmm. of crazy, fun, cool things. And especially at 19, because I didn't, I hadn't experienced enough to really know. You were, a, you were a kid. Yeah, I was a mm-hmm. kid. I was 19. And so this felt like a dream. Mm-hmm. So, of, of course, I said yes. And also, he was this super trustworthy, safe person Yeah, in my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought, part of me thought maybe like... <sighs> This is what's going to be better. Like, this is... Your fresh start. Yeah, that's my fresh start. Mm -hmm. Because that's also what he said he wanted to do for me was, Mm -hmm. like, save me. And that took a turn. But very long story short, he ended up, which I realized later he had already been grooming me since I was 15, uh, but ended up also sexually assaulting me and kind of building this relationship big air quote relationship dynamic to where it's very unbalanced power dynamic yeah and this constant need to like i needed his attention and approval and Mm -hmm. so it developed into this thing where things would happen and he he was very much the decider on like thing it just feels weird to say it in it was certain ways a, it was just a very unbalanced power dynamic involving sexual abuse for a period of time by somebody who had built himself up to be trustworthy yeah mm-hmm. yeah what Kaylee said <laughs> and so that lasted for about a year and a half and throughout all of that he was like strongly planting in my mind that nobody could ever know about this I had to take this to my grave basically mm-hmm. and I was like horrified for a, a bunch of reasons but also just all my self-worth started to come from him just like fully I needed his attention to feel like I was okay and he he made it that way And he knew what he was doing. Also, he was 11 years older than me. Mm -hmm. I was 19 and he was 31. So it's just messed up on a bunch of levels. But he was isolating you from other people because he told you you couldn't talk to anybody about this. And you, that was probably the only, like, you were in survival mode at that time Mm -hmm. because that was your world at the time. And Mm -hmm. nobody else is allowed in it because he made it that way yeah I remember one time um he even told me this was when like I started talking to another guy because it was this constant thing of like oh things would happen and then the next day he'd be like no no nothing this is bad like he'd be like mad at me because saying like I needed to have I need to have the self-control because he said he didn't have any self-control so it was up to me to make sure things didn't happen and all this stuff and then Uh, So it was never like an actual thing. It was just this mess. And so I started talking to this this other guy. And I remember he told me that if he had it his way, he would put me in a cabin somewhere by myself far away till he was able to figure out what he wanted. So I couldn't do anything or see anybody. Have I told you that? 
No, I've never <laughs> yeah. that. That's literally insane. I remember he, he said it. He had this way of being able to say whatever he wanted and it sounding funny and charming and stuff. It was weird. Mm -hmm. But for those listening who knows who he is, you know. It's just a charismatic, quote, powerful person. Yeah. Who lied about his age. Knows how to knows how to get away with things because he can talk himself. Yeah. Up and he had and talk himself out of things and he had a lot of money. Yeah. And so he could give people like what they wanted mm -hmm. and they felt like he was good at making people think they needed him mm -hmm. anyway all that did was make me feel more like this horrible broken person and I needed mm -hmm. to hide because I thought what was happening with him was my fault I was hurting people by it without getting into too much of the story I thought I was this actual like devil child who something was wrong with me that just tipped me farther into drinking world and then I went into Christian world for a while with that trying to help me cope and like tried to be perfect and I don't know. I felt like I was constantly running away. Like I went through a spurt where I moved like 20 times trying to just run away constantly from whatever was going on. I kept moving across the country. I moved to Boston on like a two-day notice. That That's where I really hit my like rock bottom wall of I have to do something about this. Can you tell me more about what that rock bottom in Boston looked like? Um, kind of when you were reached a point of needing to face kind of what was going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so I moved to Boston right after a, a tour that I went on with my best friends. It was a, I was selling merch on tour, and it was like the summer of my dreams. It was so much fun. I was traveling the country with my best friends, um, going to rock concerts every night, backstage. Like it was just, it was so much fun. It was like the perfect perfect way for me to cope because I was constantly moving. I never slept in the same city for longer than two or three nights. Mm -hmm. um, just constantly doing fun. Like there was no time to be still. Mm -hmm. And I was really afraid for it to end because I was afraid of the, the fall after the depression because I was always super depressed and I didn't know that's what it was called but I was really depressed really anxious it was just it was always really bad and so I was really really afraid of going back to real life because I didn't want to have to be in that dark place again mm -hmm. and by myself and to have to deal with this whole history of stuff if I moved to Boston I was offered a job to work for uh, my best friend who is the person I was on tour with if I moved to Boston at the end of the tour, which when I was off for the job, it was like two days before the end of the tour. And it felt like a dream. Like all my dreams in the world just came true. Like I don't have to be alone. The adventure gets to keep going. I get to stay with my best friend. Like everything's mm -hmm. going to be okay. So I obviously said yes, because of course. Yeah, of course. Um, so I move. I moved to Boston. And after like maybe a week that went by, that's when everything started to hit because I didn't know anybody in Boston but her and her friends. But there were like 
weird boundaries around how much I could be around them. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time by myself and was not eating. I didn't know I had an eating disorder yet throughout this whole time. Like I did not know, but this was probably the worst it was because when things were the hardest, that's when it was the worst. And so extremely malnourished, trying to run five or six miles every day, not eating anything alone, like very, very depressed. Like this was probably the, not the most, but very like suicidal depressed all the time um and I was just it was so dark and I what was like worse about it than the times before was that I felt so alone and isolated in this strange new city that I didn't know Mm -hmm. I didn't know anybody basically and like it was just really scary and lonely and dark and I felt I just felt alone. Basically, everything I was trying to avoid by the tour ending, just it hit me anyway. Like it always catches up to you regardless. It's going to happen. And that's where it did happen. And so um, I was really scared of the like depression and the like the suicidalness of it all. And so about three months in, um, I asked my best friend, the person who I uh, moved there to work with, to meet up, I told her I needed to talk to her about something and I ended up trying to explain. I was so nervous, I wrote it all in my journal what I was gonna say. And I just tried to tell her how it got really dark in my brain, like really dark and really sad. And I I think I can find my journal entry, but I think I told her that I thought about dying. I think I just told her I thought about dying and like wanted to die and stuff, and just how scary that was. And I didn't, I don't think, I don't remember if I actually called it depressed because I remember her saying, things later about how she like didn't something about like didn't believe that was a thing or like mental she was very christian so like didn't trust therapists and like all that and how they're gonna label people with things and she just told me to like read the bible a bunch and stuff like that but the one of the first things she said was she asked me if i ate and I, that really caught me off guard because no one had talked to me about it And I didn't think about it or talk about it. And then she basically told me I had an eating disorder. And that scared the hell out of me because I was like, what? What does that even mean? And so I started kind of panicking about that. And very long story short, if you want the whole extended edition, read one of my books. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Three days later, her parents, they were very, they they had a lot of money and um, can kind of do whatever they wanted. Uh, Her parents flew in to Boston to talk to me and within like two conversations, they told me there's two parts to the conversation. The first part, and her, mind you, her parents were also like my family at this point. Like they made me feel very much part of the family. I met her on the first tour with the first boss guy and we had been like sisters ever since and Yeah, and so they told me the first part of the conversation was that I don't have a job anymore. That basically fired me. They made it sound nice, but it wasn't. They, and then the second part of the French, or the conversation was basically saying that like, um, uh, what was happening with me was too much for my friend. And the end of the second conversation, well, they told me at first, they were like, you can't talk to her 
You can't be around her, like be at the coffee shop she's at. Like you can't just nothing, which meant I had to be more alone after they, all the stuff. So then the second conversation, basically, they told me that I had to leave Boston and move away and they were going to pay me if I moved away basically pay me a severance package because they fired me on the spot. So they were going to continue to pay me for the next, like, I think four, four or five months um, if I moved away. But I had to leave and I couldn't talk to my friend again. So they paid me to leave after firing me. So I got out of there. Not to brush past it because it was like one of the most devastating, traumatic things that had ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. But for the sake of time, we'll just move past it. Uh, I moved back to L.A., and decided I wanted to do, uh, I needed to do another fresh start. And this fresh start meant that I now knew I had an eating disorder and I knew what depression was. And I had just been basically like kicked out of a city (laughs) and banned, banished from a family that had been my family and moved to the other side of the country again. So we're gonna put this in two parts. Partially because it's been over an hour and, man, this is emotionally draining. This is so emotionally draining. And there's so much more that I want to talk about that I won't do justice if we keep going because I'm just tired and want to get to the end of it. Mm -hmm. So we're going to pause here. And then when we come back, we'll talk about um, me starting therapy and me coming out and me going to treatment and me meeting Kaylee, falling in love with Kaylee and what all that looked like. Not to give spoilers, but this isn't a spoiler. You know what's up. Spoiler alert. She's gay. (laughs) Yes, but sorry to take the control there from back to you, Kaylee. Delilah. (laughs) What did you just sing? Delilah. I don't know what that is. I'm just channeling my inner Delilah radio host voice. Okay. (laughs) I don't know who Delilah is, but I believe you. Join us next time while we discuss Jackie's life after Boston, Mm -hmm. confronting the realities of an eating disorder, depression, queer identity, trauma, and entering the big wide world of therapy. What a world. What a world. Yeah. Anyways, this has been fun and exciting, mm-hmm. and I'm very excited for our next sit-down conversation. Yes. The next one will be uh, less traumatic. <laughs> yeah, maybe, but it's, we, we, covered, we covered the we big covered a lot traumas. Of, yeah, we covered a lot of big traumas, and next is how, how you rebuilt a relationship with your body. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you just heard how the relationship with my body crumbled. It never really had a chance, um, but it just crumbled and crumbled. And now that's a good point. Next time is how we rebuild. Yeah. So this is the arc. That's where the big big hard work begins. Mm -hmm. The tough stuff, but it's good. If you don't already, which you probably do, um, follow me on Instagram at JackieG.TV. I'll put that link in the description box below. If you're super intrigued by my story or any of these concepts, I wrote a few books. Uh, One of them 
One of them you can buy right now if you're interested. That link will also be below the most recent one, which is going to get more into all this stuff. Mostly more into part two, which you haven't heard yet, but you know the stuff. Uh, that is not available yet, but please stay tuned because I'm hoping I'll be able to talk more about it this year. If you want to follow Kaylee, Kaylee, where can they find you? You can find me in a cave in the mountains. I'm just kidding. Um, you can find me at <laughs> Kaylee424 on Instagram. And that's basically all right now. Yeah. And if you want to find Bennett, you won't because she's with us. She, yes, but she's also famous on the interweb. So, oh, yeah. Look her she, up. she went viral big time on TikTok. So, her first bath, it was a big time. Yeah. But now she's viral in life. Yes. Okay. Thanks, Anyways, guys. Thanks, guys. Bye. We'll see you, we'll see you soon. Stay tuned. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Unity Project Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, uh, please feel free to go leave a review anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to follow along and get updates on new episodes or future books or past books or any and all the things, then go follow me on Instagram at JackieG.TV or just go check out my website www.jackiegronland.com. All those links will be in the description box below. So thank you so much for listening. See you next time.